to John chapter 16. John 16, let me pray and uh, we'll begin. Father, it is at this moment we are seeking to hear from you. You have said through the foolishness of preaching that your word will come forth. It will convict hearts. It will comfort hearts. Lord, through your law, we see just how far we have fallen from what you initially designed the world to be. And through your gospel, Lord, you comfort us that you will restore back again. You will redeem back again to your original design. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that we would lay aside all self-righteousness, all self-worth that we have tried to bring before you because it is only an offense in your eyes. And Lord, help us desperately to cling to Jesus Christ and put our faith and trust in him alone that we may find joy, hope, and rest. In Jesus' name, amen. We went through John 15 very slowly because there was so much that was in there. John 16 is a little bit of a review. Jesus adds a couple of thoughts to it. So believe it or not, we're going to cover 15 verses today. I know some of you may not believe that's possible, but we actually are going to cover 15 verses today. Uh, Jesus tends to talk in bigger terms, and so it allows us to cover a little bit more of his narrative. Before we begin today, though, I want to speak briefly, as it's connected to our passage, to the modern perspective of the Holy Spirit. This is a very interesting topic, and if we were to even open it up for discussion in this room, we would have probably varying opinions on what really matters when it comes to your belief or your thoughts or your interactions with the Holy Spirit. So we really, there's really three views that consist in today's modern view. There's been a lot of views throughout history that have been condemned by different councils as heresy. Uh, they tend to deny the Trinity. But in most part for today's, there is three views. And in these views, they will, they will vary. Uh, but the, probably the one that when people think of Holy Spirit, they think of the charismatic movement. Those who hold to the charismatic gifts or the special gifts. And there's entire denominations and movements that's around there, and there's, there's different brands, so I'm not going to lump everybody underneath one brand. But basically, they still believe that healing and speaking in tongues is for today, and they practice it and they pursue it. And I will say, to their defense, they actually probably emphasize the work of the Spirit more appropriately than a lot of people who haven't thought about the Holy Spirit since they used it as a cuss word recently. And so it's just not something that people think about. So there's a charismatic movement. There's also what's called the emotional experience movement, which is very actually different from the charismatic movement. It's very prominent in a lot of larger churches, and you can hear it in their music and their teaching. But it's all about experiencing the Holy Spirit. So when they mean by experience, they mean by, I want to go from an emotional dud to emotional high. When I walk out of this building on Sunday, I want to feel like, I got a jolt of the Holy Spirit. And so the songs are all about the Holy Spirit. Come, bring your presence. It's like the smoke and a mist. And come and fill us and, and bring us with your power, which is um, an interesting concept because nowhere in the New Testament are you ever called to call upon the Holy Spirit to come do something in those manners. So what's interesting also is that you can't get more of the Holy Spirit than you already have. Uh, when Jesus says that you are filled with the Holy Spirit by faith alone, you can't have more of the Holy Spirit than you have now. So it's interesting. But we connect it to an emotional experience. So we'll come in and the music's just right and the, the lighting is, I mean, we're trying to do it here, right? I mean, just look around. What a great experience we're having at the moment. Uh, the, point, the point of it is, is that 
when you don't have those emotional experiences, clearly it can't be something that's wrong with the Spirit because there's nothing broken with God. There must be something wrong with me. And we try and live day to day, week to week, year to year, increasing this euphoric experience when it comes to and, uh, the Holy Spirit. And it leads to a lot of spiritual depression. So new books, new music, new songs to try and bring that new and fresh experience. And then the third one, the third position, so charismatic emotional movement, those are probably the two biggest. And the third one is, those are wrong, so I don't have a view. <laughs> That's the third view. I don't have a view, but I know those two are wrong, so... I'm just going to ignore the Holy Spirit altogether. And we'll talk about God and we'll talk about Jesus. What's even interesting is that we put an article in the front of, of the Holy Spirit as if it's a thing and not a person. So we call God, God. We don't call him the God. And we call Jesus, Jesus. We don't call him the Jesus. But yet the Holy Spirit, we call the Holy Spirit. It's just because there's such a distance from us. We're very, we're very distant from the concept of it. Well, in today's passage, Jesus is continuing to help his, understand, help his under, disciples understand that their entire life actually is about to be centered around the Holy Spirit and the interactions with the Holy Spirit. And he's changing their, their experience of being centered around him in the person to being centered around their experience when it comes to the Holy Spirit. So my prayer today is that we as a church begin to truly see and trust what the Spirit provides to us as Christ has presented it to uh, the disciples. And really, ultimately, what Jesus is trying to give them is comfort and joy as it relates to the coming of the Spirit. So if you're in John chapter 16, let's begin reading and seeing what it is that Christ has for the disciples. A little bit of a backdrop for those of you that are visiting for us. So Jesus is toward the end of his ministry. He is hours away from dying of being betrayed the judas has already betrayed him he's left it's just the 11 disciples they've been in the upper room so it's this last meal this intimate meal this is where jesus gives them the bread and the juice and says this is my body i mean it's a very very key moment in history so jesus has one final time to give his really army their last commissioning information. And these men are described in history as being the ones who turn the world upside down. They literally go out and preach the gospel and thousands become saved. So right before they go out and do this, Jesus has some information that they need to hear. Uh, Well, in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus wants them to understand that they are going to be persecuted, they're going to be attacked because they believe that Jesus truly is God and the rest of the Jews are going to kill Jesus for making that claim. They killed Jesus for treason and for blasphemy. This is why Jesus dies. Which ultimately is why we need Christ to be our representative because we're blasphemers and we're treasonous against God. So, he's preparing them for this moment. The key that Jesus wants them to hold on to is that faith in me will produce everything that you need to accomplish your mission, which is the advancement of the gospel and the care for his people. So chapter 15 is all about, gentlemen, I am the vine, which means I am the source of life. Disconnected from me, you have no hope before God. But connected to me, you have eternal life and all fruit comes from me. And Jesus says, do you want to know how you are connected to me? Abide, rest, 
trust in. Abide in me. Jesus says, those who have trust in me, that I truly am God's son, that I truly can be your representative before God, and I truly can pay for your sins, those who rest in that, those are the ones who will bear fruit. Those are the ones who will grow. So that's the heels of what we just finished. And now Jesus is making the turn towards Gethsemane, towards persecution, towards torture. So this is where we pick up in verse 1. Now, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So now we have a little bit of a context of why he would say that. I'm trying to encourage you to to remind you to stay connected to me. This is where your hope is. So I'm saying all of this to you so that you don't fall away. Verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills, kills you will think he is offering service to God. What a profound statement. We don't have synagogues today. It's not a part of our culture, but it would be as if I, the pastor, was kicking you out of the church because you started to believe in something. A church that you'd been in your entire life, your entire culture was turned around it. And then we even advanced to kill you in the name of God. That's what he's saying. You're about to experience this. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Now, I do not believe Jesus is speaking when he talks about, I tell you this so that you will not fall away. I don't think Jesus is speaking about them losing their salvation or necessarily walking away or denying him. I think it is very much a shock factor to their souls, hitting kind of that ice-cold water. And, and wants the disciples to be ready for that jolt to their system. They had not experienced this type of persecution before. Another way of translating the word for falling away is to stumble. I think this fits the previous teachings of Jesus in the book of John. So he's, it's, it's not a fear of losing their salvation. What he's saying is, you have been around me. You've been around my power. You've been around my protection. You've experienced some persecution but I'm the one receiving it, not necessarily you. We get a glimpse of what's about to happen in John 9. The man born blind, remember that story? He was kicked out. He was persecuted. They wanted to kill him and Jesus. And that's when Jesus begins to start warning them of what's coming their way. I think it's important that we do understand that Jesus is not talking about apostasy, which means to deny Jesus and turn back to the law, or he's talking about them losing their salvation, because then it would deny everything he said up to this point. Do we maintain our status before God? Because if we do, let me tell you, I will be the first to be condemned. And so would you. There is no one that can maintain their status before God. Because to do so, it has to be perfect. Now, to maintain your status as an American citizen, I mean, you really have to do some horrendous things in order for you to lose that status. Or let's just say to maintain yourself as a free citizen within the United States and not have to be incarcerated. For the most part, I mean, you don't have to be perfect, but you got to be, you know, fairly, fairly good. <laughs> According to maintaining your status before God, it's not fairly good. It's perfection. And Jesus gets into this in a minute. So there's no way Jesus is saying, I'm telling you these things so you can maintain your status. He says, I'm telling you these things so that when you experience them, you don't lose hope and think I've abandoned you. That there's no hope, that all is lost. Which is exactly what they ended up doing anyways. Because what did they end up doing? They all dispersed and left. Went back to fishing. And Jesus shows up 
in the in a room one day when some of them were there and they're you know they screeched like little girls. Ah, who is this guy? Because they had thought all hope is lost. And he says, Did I not warn you? Did I not tell you this? Here, Thomas, come here, put your he he begins to interact with them and said, Listen, I warned you that this was about to happen. So that's kind of the backdrop of what Jesus is saying. Look at verse five. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, 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 you uh, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus is simply pointing out that instead of asking questions about his departure, like why, why are you leaving? They're more depressed over the idea that Jesus is actually leaving them. Now, of course, Jesus and his tender kindness comforts his precious disciples with truths that will change not only them, but the world forever. So what is about to come here from Jesus' mouth, unfortunately, is not something that we talk about often. And I pray that as our church, as we continue to work through the word of God, we'll see the relevance and the importance of this. There's a whole entire chapter in our confession, if you want to read that a little bit later, about the work of the Spirit. So how the world interacts with God And how Christians experience God will change the moment Jesus leaves his presence, leaves the earth. This is what Jesus is about to explain to the disciples and why they should be anticipating Christ's ascension. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Helper, noticing being capitalized, is called paraclete, is the Greek word that's used there. Sometimes that word is transferred, uh, translated as counselor, uh, comforter, helper, helper. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, how could there be anything better than having the actual presence of Jesus on the earth? This is what's in the minds of the disciples, and I know it's in the minds of many of you, Right? Imagine how helpful Jesus would be on social media right now. I mean, he never sends, so he would always put out the perfect tweet. Imagine how he could bring comfort and smash his opponents by one-word answers. No. Jesus could, could, I mean, in today's culture, Jesus could have his own TV show where he proves to everyone he is the Son of God. Wouldn't that be so much better than leaving us to try and convince people that a man that lived 2,000 years ago actually still lives? Wouldn't it be better if he just stayed? Because Jesus had a perfect body. He's never going to die. Jesus, the person, is not theoretical. He is a real man. And so if he were, when he descends, he descends not as a spirit. He descends as a man who is still alive and is never going to die. So why couldn't he just stay I mean, imagine if a prophet came and told you Jesus was coming back to live with us so that more people would believe. We would all think this would be a great option, right? Instead of the options that we have right now. Jesus in the flesh. So we could say, see, he's real. He's right there. You can see him. Now, I know in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, that does sound like a good option. Why 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 isn't that what's going on? Well, I encourage you to go back and look at John 1, and begin reading through the entire section of John up to this point. And those of you who had, those, I'm sorry, those in this story from John and all of the, all of the Gospels, who had the physical presence of Jesus, 
They saw him. They saw him walk on water, feed 5,000, raise people from the dead, heal the blind, prophesy truths that there's no way he would know. They saw him and did not fall on their hands and faces and worship him. Why? Because they didn't believe it was real. And we're not talking one account or two accounts. Thousands. We have 33 years, specifically concentrated in three years, of thousands of people actually watching Jesus in person, and they don't think to themselves, wow, this must be God. They actually reject him. So this isn't a theory. It actually happened. He lived on the earth. People saw him and didn't believe. So the issue isn't that Jesus' actual presence isn't here to prove that he exists. That's already happened. The issue lies deeper within humanity, and this is what Jesus is about to get at. This is why Jesus says it is much better that I leave, because when I leave, I'm sending someone to do a work that is far greater than one person, me, can do in the present physical state. So that's why he tells his disciples, oh, it's much better if I leave. Because when I leave, I'm sending someone back. Look at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And he said a lot here, so what we're going to do is for those of you who liked outlines, i got three points for you. So here you go, three-point outline. We're going to go through each of these and connect them to Jesus. And I think you'll better understand the role of the Spirit and why it is that Jesus had to ascend and send the Holy Spirit to do his work. So first of all, he says, concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Now, Jesus said he, was, he had come to seek and to save that which was lost, which is interesting those who find themselves broken, battered, and absolutely have no self-righteousness and would not present themselves as holy before God. Just think of the centurion, or I'm sorry, think of the, the Pharisee and the sinner in the temple. You have one who is beating his chest saying, Lord, please be a merciful to a man like me. And then you have the second man who's naming off all of his righteousness before God. And Jesus says, I tell you, the first man, he goes, not the self-righteous, but the one broken, Jesus says, that's who I've come to seek and to save. In John 1, Jesus is described as being the light of the world. And when the light comes into the world, it exposes sin or exposes darkness where sin likes to hide. And in that evil, which is in the human heart, it then tries to hide or cover it. This is why when Jesus comes in and speaks truth to the crowd, he is exposing how dirty they truly are, how evil their hearts really are, and they hate him for it. They hate him for it. So in this, and, and, and all you have to do is look at it. You go from, you go from Jesus feeding the 5,000, they love Jesus, and then he, he opens up the light to all these people who love him, and then they all run away from him because they're mad at him, or they want to kill him, or they want to imprison him. So the act of Jesus convicting people, he is the essence of righteousness. The act of convicting people, he is now to leave. He can only convict as many people as he can see and touch and feel at that moment. What he is saying is that light that comes and exposes people to their sin will go throughout the entire world once the Spirit comes. 
So it's not only those who are in the presence of Christ that will feel the light of conviction, but it's everyone. Go back to the verse when he says, because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit's job is to come and expose your heart to the reality of God. And when he does, it exposes it and says, you don't believe in Jesus. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And this is the very heart that hates and runs from Christ because it hates to be exposed. So Jesus tells the disciples, take heart, gentlemen. The Spirit will come and expose sin of disbelief. Now, he doesn't leave it alone there. That's not just despair. Jesus is not in the business, nor is God in the business of just exposing sin and leaving people in their sins. Otherwise, why would Jesus die on the cross? But what he is saying is, gentlemen, my presence is not enough. There needs to be work within the souls of people so that they can be brought to faith. And the Spirit can do a much broader job than I can do. Now, I do want to take a minute and help us as, as, uh, in our church as understand more clearly what Jesus and the New Testament is speaking of when it comes to sin of disbelief. Sinclair Ferguson, in the book that we're going through right now by Grace Alone in our Men's and Women's Bible Study, he, he made this observation that I think was uh, profoundly helpful in understanding why it is that God gets so angry at sinners. Here's the quote. It says, The New Testament indicates that God's great purpose is that we should honor his son. So if you look at the entire Bible and the conclusion of it, the conclusion of it is God wants you to honor his son. Therefore, not to honor him is surely to be deeply alienated from God. Have you ever thought, why is it that God demonstrates so much anger towards sinners? People are like, well, God's a loving God. True, he is a loving God. But his anger still exists, and hell still exists. And why do those two things exist? What we don't understand in the coming of the Son, I think, helps accentuate this issue is that our hearts are so evil and so dark we don't understand how much of an offense it is to God so God creates the world world of course is created by Jesus if you read John 1 he is the creator sustainer of all things we do not acknowledge Christ to be the creator and sustainer of all things we don't acknowledge him and glorify him as God had intended this is his son whom he am well pleased he loves his son the moment that you do not bow the knee acknowledge him worship him and love him and follow Christ with all of your being that is the greatest offense you can make against God how do we know this to be true <laughs> because Jesus told us this you have no access unless you come through me. And if you are not following and loving me, then the Father will reject you because you've rejected me. This is literally what he says. Let me put it to you in this way. This is a very small illustration, but I think it will help you understand the heat that comes from those who will not submit to the Son. If someone were to come up and mistreat your wife or mistreat my wife in a very abusive and cold and crude way, and I'm standing there and I don't do anything. I don't show a scowl. I don't interrupt. I kind of ignore the situation. All of you standing around watching this happen, including my wife, will think what of me? I'm a great husband. I'm a great person. 
you would be offended by my lack of anger and by me not stepping in and opposing that which is hurting my wife. Is that not true? Of course you would. And in some circumstances, depending on the offense, a good hard fist to the nose might work in demonstrating just how offensive this person has been to my wife and what they've said. And you would go, that guy deserved to be punched for being whatever it is that he did. We can understand those offenses because she as a person does not deserve to be treated as such. And, and me in my relationship to her, I don't want her to be treated as much because I love her and cherish her. And she's the, the most important being to me on this earth. How much more when God says, he created you. He created this world. And the way in which you act is more offensive than simply just being sarcastic in a comment. Your denial to worship and accept the Son deserves death. That's how much anger it brings God. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's job is to come and expose that in people. It's good, because otherwise the gospel will not make sense. And it helps you understand just how much grace you truly have received. As Christians, as believers... When the gospel, sorry, when the law is preached over to you, do this perfectly. Do not lie, do not cheat, do not lust. And you look at that and go, I haven't done that. You should feel the weight. I have not honored the son as I should. And what I deserve is God's full wrath. What he paid out on Jesus, he should pay out on me. And trust me, you've all heard about the cross. You don't want that payment. And he doesn't. And it's at that moment that we are drawn into the mercy and the grace of God. So Jesus is connecting all of this to them. Look at the second point. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So Jesus was the perfect standard of righteousness. If you wanted to know what was right, acceptable thoughts and deeds before God, before the Father, all you had to do is look at Jesus, right? (laughs) The famous phrase, what would Jesus do? Not promoting that phrase, by the way. But Jesus is no longer here. That's why that phrase doesn't work. I don't know what Jesus would do. He's no longer here. But he says, I'm sending, now that I'm leaving, I will send you the Spirit. And the Spirit will then be the guide by which one is judged by righteousness or not. So the big issue Jesus is getting at here is the self-righteousness of the Jewish people. Believers, I'm sorry, so, so you have an entire system that was created over hundreds of years. And the moment Jesus shows up on the scene... He is healing somebody on the Sabbath and they are condemning him for it, saying he is a sinner and a wretch who is denying the law. And Jesus is like, that's a law that wasn't even created. It's a law that was created by you. That's not the righteous standard that comes from God. That's a righteous standard that comes from you. So when he says here concerning righteousness, judgment is coming, the Holy Spirit will come and expose it because I am no longer here, I'm with the Father. He's saying the standard by which you are to live by will be judged by the Holy Spirit. Because I'm no longer here to set that standard. You know, believers are judged. uh, Believers, we as Christians, are also judged. And we judge each other for sins that, in my opinion, from Scripture, are created by Satan. And this is what I mean. You hold each other to a standard that was never created by Scripture. And if you don't hold to that standard, you are now considered to be a sinner 
that is a lie, and who is the father of all lies? Even ones that concern Christianity, even lies that concern Christianity are lies from Satan. He can't get you to be a follower of him anymore, but he absolutely can get you to stop focusing on what we should focus on. And so here's a great example of this. You can write it down, Colossians chapter 2, the end of the chapter. Starting in verse 20, he says this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's talking about regulations that have nothing to do with the standards of God, but regulations that were created outside of the standard of God, a.k.a. these would be the lies of Satan. This is what he says. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. So food dietary laws. And let me tell you what, man. Food laws around this American culture is insane right now. Like, well, I, I like the keto diet. They're going to come and eat you. You know, well, I, I, you know, I don't eat meat or I don't eat. It, it's insane what we create as righteous standards for each other. Referring to all the things that are perished, they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That means of beating up of the body and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what does he say? He goes on in Corinthians. He says, you need to look to the one who saved you and live by faith, trusting in Christ and in his righteousness, not living and trusting in the lie you have been told that you think that what you eat And how you dress and what you wear and where you go is what causes you to be righteous before God. He says, they have an appearance of being righteous, but they are not. Jesus says, when I leave, the Spirit's job is to come and expose this. I won't be here to expose it anymore. Let me ask you this question. Who did Jesus get angry at when he was here? Did he get angry at the harlots? Did he get angry at the thieves, a.k.a. tax collectors? Did he get angry at the drunkards? Did he walk into the bars and turn the bars upside down, pulling out bull whips and whipping the bartenders? Is that where he went? No, as a matter of fact, they accused Jesus of being drunk and a glutton and lazy. He actually walked into the self-righteous pit, which was the temple, which was supposed to be the house of God, And all those who were presenting themselves as holy before God because of what they were wearing and how they were acting and all the laws they were holding to, Jesus pulled out a whip and whipped him. (laughs) He went after the self-righteous. He said, look, I'm not going to be here anymore to do that. I'm not going to be here to expose those who think they're right before God by what they do. The Holy Spirit's going to come and take care of that for me. You want me to go because he'll do a better job because he can do it for everyone. Better is relative. He can do a a wider job. I always have a hard time saying somebody can do something better than Jesus. (laughs) All right, number three, it says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So as I mentioned already, Satan, who is the father of all lies, has created schemes by which people are judged by or judging. Jesus tells the disciples, the true judge will come, which is Holy Spirit, And he rightly brings conviction upon those who are guilty, not based upon Satan's standards, but God. So he judges Satan and then brings true judgment to those who need to be judged. It is in this sense, Jesus says, I will be made right when the Spirit comes. 
I will, so all that's being done wrong to me, the Spirit will come and judge and make things right. So Christians are judged for all kinds of erroneous accusations. And in a sense, Jesus is warning the disciples the Spirit will come and He will be the one who makes this right. It's not your responsibility to make it right. You know, throughout history and even in today's world, Christians are, we are accused for the weirdest stuff. You know, for instance, we're accused of judging other people. So if I make a stance and I hold to the Bible's teaching about whatever, gender identity, sexuality, whatever it is, that is that moment that we are accused of being judging, intolerant, we're accused of being closed-minded and ignorant. And all of those are accusations are being lobbed from Satan. Those are not truths that come from Christ, so those are lies of Satan. And Jesus says, listen, it's not your responsibility to try and shut their mouths. They will receive the judgment because the judgment has already been cast upon Satan. And this is helpful because you and I, we're going to walk out of here and go watch football and eat food or whatever it is we're going to do and have a good time today and we're going to deal with the pain of eating too much and then take a nap, right? I mean, that's the persecution we're going to deal with. Some of you are going to be really angry because your football team didn't win, whatever. He's about to warn these disciples who are going to be in prison, beaten, and then crucified upside down. Listen, I know what you're about to experience is going to be unjust. You don't deserve to be treated this way. But the Spirit is here to do his job and let him do his job. Take heart, men. All will be made right. So this is where we pick up in verse 12. So you kind of have the warning. That's the first section of the chapter 16. You, can, you have the setup of the Holy Spirit. His role is coming. And now he's going to take everything he just said and he's going to use it to comfort his men. So look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now, which is the role of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit living within them yet to help them understand. That's why he says, I got to stop now. When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you to all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority Whatever his heart he, well, sorry, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father is, has is mine, therefore I say to, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I know that sounds confusing. Let me wrap it down into a smaller package for you. What he's saying is, what you're about to experience is not separate from everything else you've ever seen and heard. Now, how many of you look at your Bible and you're like, oh boy, there's a lot in there. And I don't understand it all. <laughs> Jesus just said, everything the Father has said and commanded, Old Testament. Everything I've said, since I've been on earth, New Testament. The Holy Spirit's going to come and help it make sense to you. That's his job. He doesn't have new information for you. He, I mean, do you, do you guys understand this, everything that's in the Bible? Because if you do, then you're like the first ever, besides Jesus. It says the role of the Spirit is to come, and look at verse 14. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Christ consists of all of God's word. So it's not just what's in red. It's all of God's word. He said he will take it, and he will declare it to you. He will preach it over. He will make it implanted into your heart. This is the second time Jesus has spoken to the disciples about the role of the Spirit 
turn with me if you're still in John 16, turn over to verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, verse 26. This is the first time he hints at the paraclete, the helper. He uses the word helper here again. It says in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So before the Spirit comes, these men don't have a power within them. Now, they're alive, which we talked about regeneration, which means they go from death to life. But the help of the Spirit who actually dwells within you. I mean, this is John 14. Oh, man, if I could go back and preach that chapter again. Literally, where God says, I and the Son will come and make a house within you, and the Spirit will come and he will expose you to who we are. That's the difference between living in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everyone had saved the same, except for they didn't have the experience. They had to go to the temple to experience the presence of God. The presence of God now lives within you, which still is hard for me to comprehend. So I don't stand up here like, I've got it all. You know, I float two feet off the ground because the Holy Spirit lives with me. I figured it out and you didn't. This is what Jesus is trying to comfort him with. So Jesus in the book of John would teach thousands of people from the hillside. They would come and they would hear, but the time that he had with them was very limited. Thousands of people, right? But then there was his disciples, and there was probably a couple hundred of these disciples that would follow him around. And then you had this, the, the close-knit disciples, as we know as the 12, which is limited down now to 11. And these were the inner circle of Jesus, those who knew Jesus better than anybody in the planet because they spent three years with him. They laid their head on his chest. They sat with him, heard him teach, watched him heal, saw his pure glory at points. You can imagine these men's despair thinking Jesus is going to leave them. And Jesus is telling these precious men, oh, take heart. Everything that I have ever taught or the Father has taught is not leaving you. My presence is leaving you. But everything that consists of me will remain when the Spirit comes and lives within you. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit comes, sorry, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare these things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father is mine, therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So is there any truth that matters outside the Father and the Son? No, there is no truth. So all truth that matters comes to us from the Spirit. Now here's a huge question that you have to ask yourself. Does God, does Jesus keep it Uh, vague. Okay. Well, then if the Spirit's supposed to come, and it comes to everyone who's a believer, so if I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe in Jesus, he comes and he dwells in me, must I just kind of meditate and wait anxiously for the Spirit to come and and bring this news to me? Thankfully, no. Because you have to be asking in the back of your mind. Okay, all of God's truth and Christ's truth will come to me through the Spirit. How is that to happen? Because I'll tell you right now, I don't have all of that right now, right? That's what we're feeling. How the Spirit promises to bring God's truth to our hearts, there's three ways. We talk about these all the time, but I think it's helpful here. 
So this promise of the Spirit coming, disciples, I'm leaving. I'm sending someone. And he will come and he will comfort and guide. He will convict. He will lead. He will expose the light. And then he will take all of my truth and he will implant it into your heart. How is that accomplished? Well, as you keep reading the New Testament, explanation comes. So we're going to jump ahead and make our conclusion this morning. We learn that it's through the public preaching of God's word that God takes his words that he wrote down. He has them declared over the top of the people. And it's at that moment when you have the words on you, the spirit takes them and he implants them into your heart and he brings them to life and your heart and your mind are encouraged and strengthened and grow. The promise of the Spirit through the Word of God is that the preaching, the public preaching of God's Word is the promise that Jesus is talking to to his disciples. If you want God's truth implanted into your heart, as Christ said, where he takes it and he shares it and he declares it to you, it's done through his Word. It's not the wisdom of man. And to even go back to the original, this is where I kind of struggle a little bit with some of the charismatic movements because they bring new words that aren't connected to the Word of God. I don't need more revelation from God. I need to understand the one I already have. And so we preach it. The second way in which the Holy Spirit, which we are guided by Paul, is that he uses the fellowship of the saints. In Ephesians and in Philippians and in Colossians, Paul is talking to a congregation, and he says to them, consider how to build one another up into love and good works. Well, what are you using to build each other up? You're using God's word, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, which are all connected to God's word. He also tells the Ephesians, when you focus on Christ and you do your role of ministering, bearing each other's burdens, when the body functions properly, it builds itself up in love. So God, through the spirit, uses each other to encourage us and causes us to be encouraged and strengthened through his word. So you have the word preached, you have the word lived, Two huge factors within, and this is through all that the New Testament. This isn't like a, a hair drop here and a hair drop there. You do me a favor. You go read the New Testament, and specifically the, the instructions to the New Testament. <laughs> it's all centered around caring for one another through the means of, word, of the word of God. And then the third one, which you've heard me say before, which is baptism and the Lord's table or sacraments, as the word goes. This is why every Sunday we come and we eat on Christ, is what it says. This is my body. Take it. Eat it. This is my blood spilt for you. The presence of God physically left. He then replaced it with the Spirit of God. Now, this is where confusion gets lost a little bit, and so I'm going to, in 30 seconds, explain it to us. When we participate in the table... You need to understand that through the teaching of the New Testament, it is at that moment we are experiencing the presence of God. When God's word is being heralded over his people, and we collectively hear it, this is God speaking, not my voice, his word. When we take the table, God uses that physical symbol to identify his presence with us. And he says, this actually feeds your soul. So when Jesus just finished in the upper room giving these men the bread and the juice as an illustration, a continuance, a difference of the Passover. He says to them, the spirit, when I leave, he will come. And when he does, he will implant 
into you my words. And the way in which he does that is the preaching of the word, the fellowship of the saints, and of the table. This is why our church makes this our primary focus. Because we actually believe Jesus' words. So many people, and I know there are many of you in here have experienced this. So many people live every single day wondering if God is good with them, wondering if they're growing, wondering if I'm actually going to make it, have I done enough? And the way you evaluate that is by your performance. You look at your Bible reading, you look at your prayer life, you look at your journal life, you look at the sins that you've been able to stay away from. My dear friends, if you think what Jesus is speaking to here is the evaluation of your life, you missed what he said. It's not. If you're looking for a scale tip, you'll never tip it in the right direction, ever. Just come spend a day with me and I will point out every time that you sin. And then we'll, we'll, tell, we'll do a tally at the end of the day. We'll take your sin and my sin, which mine will be much more than yours because I'll be judging the entire time. And then you ask yourself, did I do more for God or did I do more for myself today? It will always be yourself. It will always be yourself. This is why we live by faith. Galatians says, the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Now, and Abraham... If you don't know the life of Abraham, go start in Genesis 10 and start reading. Homie is a hoodlum. And God calls him righteous because of faith. So as a church, as we take on the teaching of Jesus, and we'll close this down here, man, let's get ready for the table. My encouragement to us is this. Do not take that moment of the table, nor the preaching of God's word, nor the time that we come together. Do not take it lightly. The promise of Jesus is that he uses it to strengthen you and to encourage you and to build you up. He does not make that promise for anything else. Hear me clearly. Not your own little journaling time or any other thing else you want to put in there. This is what the Spirit put promises into. Not saying that they're not helpful, but if you're going to focus your time anywhere, focus it where Christ promised he would be through his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, <laughs> the preciousness of the word. Lord, help implant it into our heart. Make it clear. Help us to see our need. Help us to rest in that, not in our ability. Lord, help us not to come as those who are righteous. If there's anyone here, Father, that believes, oh, Lord, I don't deserve to take the table today because I have so much sin and baggage, it's that person who needs it more than ever. Lord, we do not come to the table because we deserve it. We come because we don't deserve it. As children receive the blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.